You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. We gotta live on science Welcome to Unbiased Science, where we bring scientific method to the madness. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica Steyer and Dr. Andrea Love. And this week, we are joined again by Dr. Craig Chepke, board-certified psychiatrist, who joined us recently for an amazing episode on postpartum depression. That was such a fantastic conversation that we invited Craig back to talk about another mental health issue slash disorder. Um, Attention Deficit and Hyperactivity Disorder, ADHD. Craig, I'm going to read your very impressive bio right now to introduce you to the world once again. So Dr. Craig Chepke is a board-certified psychiatrist and has been named a Distinguished Fellow of the American Psychiatric Association. He attended NYU School of Medicine and completed his residency training at Duke University. In addition to his clinical practice, Dr. Chepke is an adjunct associate professor of psychiatry for Atrium Health. Dr. Chepke has special interests in treatment-resistant and serious mental illness, movement disorders, sleep medicine, and ADHD. His approach is to personalize treatment to each individual person, from the newest leading-edge medications to older, underutilized treatments such as lithium and clozapine. He also strongly emphasizes psychotherapeutic interventions and physical health and wellness through exercise, dietary modification, and supplementation. He is active in clinical trials and serves on the board of directors of nonprofit organizations benefiting schizophrenia and Huntington's disease. Craig, thank you so much for joining us again. Well, thank you so much for having me back, Jess and Andrea. I could not be more delighted to be here today. So let me set the stage. So I'm sure everyone has heard of ADHD. Many people probably have also heard of ADD, which is no longer a term that's used. Um, but ADHD, or Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, is a neurodevelopmental disorder disorder that's characterized by patterns of behavior that include hyperactivity, impulsivity, and inattention. And it is quite prevalent amongst both kids and adults. And we're going to get into some of the meat of this conversation. But very quickly, when we look at the estimated number of children, that's children between the ages of 3 and 17 that are diagnosed with ADHD, by surveying parents, the estimates are around 6 million, which is about 10% of children. Um, and that's from data over over the last five to 10 years or so. You're seeing highest prevalence of diagnosis among school-age children. So children um, from either um, kind of six to 11, so that preteen um, age group, or between 12 and 17 years of age. And ultimately, there's some variability in diagnosis, right? So there's state-by-state -state variability. Um, there's also variability in, in prevalence or diagnosis amongst different ethnicities. So so you're seeing that black non-Hispanic children and white non-Hispanic children are more often diagnosed with ADHD as compared to Hispanic or Asian children. And we see that boys are almost twice as likely to be diagnosed with ADHD than girls. But we're going to talk a little bit about whether that's really prevalence or whether that is limitations of diagnosis and, and clinical presentation. And we are seeing some of the changes where adults are now being diagnosed with ADHD after likely having it for most of their life. And Craig's going to get into why there might be this diagnostic gap in a little bit. But I, I happen to be one of those people. I was diagnosed with ADHD in May after thinking for almost 20 years. I had only depression and anxiety. Turns out I also have ADHD. I'm now being treated for it. And it's it's kind of phenomenal how much of a difference that makes. This is clearly something that, that touches us all personally. Uh, my son, I don't even know if I shared this with you, Andrea or Craig, just last week um, was formally diagnosed with ADHD. And so we're, we're navigating um, how to handle that now. Um, but Craig, maybe we could turn things over to you to sort of, you know, talk to us about 
what do we what do we think causes ADHD? What do we know? What don't we know? Let's lift the curtain. Well, before I even get into that, I want to say it touches me personally as well, uh, and in a, a similar fashion to both of you. So, I, like Andrea, I was not diagnosed until much later in life. For me, it was after I finished my psychiatry residency. Unfortunately, after after college, med school, and residency at, at age thirty, and also three of my four kids have been diagnosed with ADHD, and the fourth is only two, so we have no idea. As of yet. So this is something that is really uh, important to me personally as well as professionally. And I was going to say, it sounds like you might be alluding to the fact that there might be a genetic component to ADHD. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, when talking about what do we know and what do we don't don't we know, uh, the vast majority is going to be in what don't we know. And that's the case with, with most psychiatric disorders because the brain is just almost impenetrable, uh, at least to our scientific knowledge thus far. It's a lot easier to examine the heart, the kidneys, the lungs, than it is the brain. It's the toughest organ in the body to study and the most complicated as well. And there's a lot we don't know, but there is definitely a genetic component. The quick and dirty thumbnail way to put it is that ADHD is roughly about as heritable as height. So if you uh, are a tall person, you're going to be more likely to have tall children and vice versa. And ADHD is as heritable as height, roughly. Uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's tremendous heritability, more so than most other psychiatric disorders. So it is very common. And what are those genetics? Well, it's vast, it's complicated, it is multifactorial. This is not a single gene. This is hundreds, maybe thousands of genes that are coalescing together to come uh, up with this particular diagnosis. And so we don't know exactly what causes it, but kind of working backwards, we do know that most of the medications that are utilized to treat ADHD have the, uh, functions in serotonin and norepinephrine, and they can modulate those two neurotransmitters. That doesn't mean those are the only two neurotransmitters involved. Clearly not, but there's got to be something going on with those two neurotransmitters at least, but there's also interplay. Uh, you can't touch anything in the brain without having a downstream effect on others. So certainly serotonin is going to be involved, glutamate, GABA, just in ways that we're just not smart enough to elucidate yet. But there's the some dysfunction most likely in the frontal cortex. Uh, the frontal cortex is where things like executive function and control tend to live uh, and several other uh, areas of the brain, but really more the circuits of the brain is probably a better way to talk about it because it's about the connections between the different areas of the brain and how the communication goes rather than just a specific area in the brain we we believe is the, the a more advanced and and modern way to think about it. There's also evidence now that in addition to having these genetic contributions, the actual encyclopedia of all your DNA, there's also factors that we call epigenetic factors, which are mm -hmm. modifications of the DNA itself um, that make it more or less likely that those genes will be expressed. And so there's these proteins that will wrap around the DNA kind of like pearls on a string, and they can make it more or less available to turn in to a functional gene. And those are also inherited or can be inherited. And we're finding that there's likely some of these components that are involved in the presentation or development of ADHD as well. Yeah, absolutely. And those can be, uh, the epigenetics can be influenced by things like early life adversity, which can be passed down through generations. Environmental exposures can affect the expression of our genes. Uh, overall, I really love the concept of epigenetics because our destiny is not written in the stars, so to speak. That our DNA is the same always. But as you said, the way that we express the DNA can be different. So that to me is an incredibly hopeful uh, characteristic because if negative life experiences can negatively influence our gene expression, that means the opposite must be true as well. And positive life experiences can break that cycle and can result in healthier expression of certain genes. Yeah, no, it's it's absolutely true. Um, it just adds to the complexity of understanding everything, yeah. <laughs> right? We get a bunch of people DM us all the time. And I'm trying to think about what some of the claims are, but basically there's a lot of concern about prenatal, perinatal things going on that might impact likelihood of, of a child developing ADHD. Andrew, I'm trying to think of some examples of things. So, um, so they talk about um, toxin exposures and consuming caffeine and, and um, smoking and alcohol and drug use, a lot of those sorts of things. And of course, a lot of this ends up like coming across as victim blaming in many ways. And I think it's really important for people to understand that 
as Craig said, this is multifactorial and we don't even, you know, we haven't even parsed out, you know, a fraction of, of the contributions. So it's extremely unlikely that a single thing, a single behavior is going to cause or not cause something. So, you know, we we have to stop with kind of the parent shaming and all of that. Mm -hmm. But on top of that, just because you have a gene that may be associated or implicated in any disorder, whether it is cancer or ADHD or anything like that, doesn't mean that you're 100% definitely going to develop that condition. It's the same with these uh, gene mutations that are associated with breast cancers or other cancers. It it increases your likelihood. It does not guarantee. Yes. We we really need to make a shirt, Andrea. Let's let's make note of this for merch. Health (laughs) is multifactorial. We say it ad nauseum in every single episode and every single post. Um, But it's just coming back to me. I mean, we've heard things about uh, maternal Tylenol use during pregnancy, um, things like food dyes, things like that, where we really just don't have any strong, compelling evidence that says definitively, you know, that 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 this causes ADHD. And exactly as as we're all saying here, it, that's, it's not as simple as that. It's also multivectorial. But Craig, are there certain prenatal, perinatal, anything that we should be aware of um, when talking about ADHD? Well, uh, one thing that I'm reminded of is when that I was on the pod for the, the po- uh, postpartum depression talk, one thing that I said applies here, whatever you do as a mom, it's wrong. <laughs> Uh, according to the internet, so I, I, that's that's applying here as well. But uh, you know, th- some of the things that have been uh, associated again, association, not causation. But you know, as things like smoking, and you know, I almost hesitate to get too much into specific factors uh, for fear of perpetuating them. But uh, you know, living a, as healthy of a lifestyle as one can is going to be beneficial to the woman and to her baby in various ways. That's probably maybe just the best way to say it. I mean, ultimately, as parents, we just do the best we can, and uh, no one's perfect, and we just do do whatever we can. So, Craig, let's talk a little bit about you know how it's diagnosed and the history of how it's diagnosed, how it was characterized in the DSM, and why we may see some gender differences. Because historically and stereotypically, it's often thought that boys have ADHD more than girls. Mm -hmm. And some of those stereotypes, and that can be either in the classroom, within parents, even in healthcare providers, that influences the frequency with which boys and girls are diagnosed during childhood. And so the criteria for ADHD has kind of been stratified over the years. So maybe you can walk us through some of that. Yeah. So uh, you alluded to earlier, Andrea, that that there's uh, a term uh, ADD, attention deficit disorder, which is kind of obsolete now. Uh, An earlier term than that in early DSMs was actually MBD, minimal brain dysfunction. (laughs) What a great name, right? Uh, it's just minimal brain dysfunction. Uh, it, so it's gone through many different permutations, and it's uh, it's. I like to say that psychiatry can't name anything right, and ADHD is definitely one of those. No matter which one of the incarnations that it was, but uh, so the 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 current construct as we know it of ADHD did start uh, prior, previously as ADD. And now in DSM, in the DSMs, uh, starting uh, with DSM four, there it was changed to uh, the ADHD from ADD, and that when, But there are subtypes. There's uh, ADHD inattentive type, ADHD hyperactive type, and then ADHD combined type, where there's the prominent features of both. Uh, and so, basically, ADHD inattentive type is what we used to call ADD, but it just technically is no longer used in a medical sense, but it's it's still very, very commonly used in uh, in pop culture. But the, the this construct was really defined based off of the symptoms that are presented by more or less six to 12 year old boys. That's it. They, def- they define the set of criteria based around the six to 12 year old boys. That's what they did the field tests on. The, uh, the DSM uses field tests to test the validity of it. And so, really, the current diagnostic criteria have only ever been designed for and field tested on six to 12 year old boys, not even 13 to 17 year old boys, girls of any age, adults of any age, or adults of either gender. So, it, it really is very limiting. And going along with that, the way that we are trained in medicine, to uh, look for it is really not conducive either. 
really what I remember about it from my psychiatry training is more or less, oh, if you do a child adolescent fellowship, that's where they'll teach you about it, is my remembrance of the kind of the take home message. And so, is it any wonder that as adult practitioners, we're not very good at recognizing ADHD because we didn't learn about it? So, the children who get diagnosed with ADHD, they might, they age out of their uh, providers who know what ADHD looks like more so, in my opinion, than they age out of the condition themselves. So, uh, that's one of the biggest misconceptions oh, they'll grow out of it. And also, one other thing that I picked up on that you said in the intro that I, is one of my huge points. Uh, one thing the DSM did right is that in DSM-5, they moved it to the neurodevelopmental disorder section. And that is a huge change because it's right, it sits right in between autism spectrum disorder and specific learning disorder, which I don't think anyone would argue that people grow out of those. Um, and what those two diagnoses do say in the DSM, which right now ADHD doesn't say have language like this, but I'm hopeful that one day it could because I certainly believe it to be the case, is that these are conditions that people can have, but that the symptoms can be masked by certain adaptations that they have, certain uh, structural advantages that they may have in terms of loving, supporting family who is able to afford tutors or who can uh, have time to help the, the, the children through and provide scaffolding for them to, in terms of organization and uh, support. Certainly, I had that in spades uh, with my mom, who is literally still my secretary at my office, <laughs> still providing me that support and scaffolding uh, to this very day. Uh, so, it, it, uh, if you have that kind of scaffolding, and also another one is intelligence. There has uh, been uh, there have been studies showing that the higher the IQ is correlated with a later age of diagnosis. The way that I kind of put that to patients is that you can just kind of brute force IQ your way through earlier schoolings and things like that, and you can still get pretty good grades or very good grades even. But it can come at a cost. It can, uh, it can be a double-edged sword because you may have to work two, three, four, or five times as hard as all the other kids or adults who don't have ADHD who are getting similar results. And again, that's what I found my, myself growing up is that I just worked my butt off. I seem to have to work way harder than anyone else in any of my classes to get those same results. So, yeah, I got good results, but it, it came at a cost. I'll quickly kind of run through. So, so as you mentioned, you know, the criteria, even as they're listed in the DSM, are really geared towards young boys. It's, it's talking about fidgeting in your seat, um, avoiding schoolwork, mm -hmm. um, not being able to prepare homework, easily distracted by external stimuli, forgetting to do chores, um, you know, and so on and so forth. And so when we're talking about, you know, the inattentive presentation, this is a situation where, you know, you're not able to focus on things that are not captivating your attention. So, you know, I hear a lot of times it's like you're looking for that dopamine hit and the things that are really menial to you are the things you're going to avoid, like the plague. And that was always me, right? Like I would sit there and fixate on infectious disease textbooks as a child, but I couldn't, you know, vacuum my room. I couldn't put my laundry away because that was boring, right? The hyperactivity is that motor fidgeting, right? The activity, the, the, the can't sit in your chair, the, the leg tapping, the, the pencil tapping, the nail picking, all that sort of stuff. And so, you know, as you mentioned, a lot of people are able to mask this. You know, I happened to, you know, have higher than average IQ, and I was in a school program that was really less focused on textbook learning and more on creative projects. And so I really mm -hmm. kind of funneled my energy into all those creative projects, which was a good outlet. But, you know, getting diagnosed at 36 years old after graduate school, after being in a career for nine years, Beyond that, I'm like, man, like grad school could have been so much easier if I had been diagnosed and was managing this correctly because, you know, my psychiatrist nowadays was like, you know, you, I've tried all these different meds for depression and anxiety, and I still, you know, experience this, this excessive fatigue by the time the weekend rolls around or this constant daily headache. And he's like, it sounds like your brain is just working too much. Like your brain shouldn't have to work this hard. And the first day I took my new medication, my headache went away. And I was like, but like it, it like the amount of, of difference, it's kind of like, you know, he, he describes the inattentive as 
internal hyperactivity because you're really, you're still hyperactive, but it's your brain internally processing all these different stimuli all at once. And it's all kind of jumbled together. And you're trying to sift out what's what you should be focusing on and what's extraneous. Whereas the hyperactivity presentation, it's that physical manifestation of it. I love the way that your psychiatrist talked about it, but I'll uh, tweak it just a little bit for the way that I think about it is that really, I think that the core concept in this condition is impulsivity. And that applies equally to inattention and to hyperactivity. It's almost like people with ADHD have uh, malfunctioning brake systems in their brain. They can't put the brakes on and stop themselves from moving around. They have motor uh, impulsivity. And same thing with the inattention. It's, uh, it, it's definitely not attention deficit disorder. The biggest misnomer, because as you said, you could focus on immunology. Uh, that's a common thing that parents will say, oh, my kid can't have ADHD because they can play Fortnite for 12 hours <laughs> yeah. straight. It's attention dysregulation disorder, is that they're not able to shift the attention appropriately to where it needs to be. It can lock onto something that they're interested in, and they hyper-focus on it, and so they can't uh, can attend to things. But let's say the fire alarm goes off, uh, and that, Johnny, Johnny, we got to go the, the house is on fire okay just let me get to the next yeah. save point mom it, they can't shift the attention or alternately if they're in a boring situation which maybe could be a classroom and a squirrel goes by stereotypically <laughs> then that impulsivity they can't keep their focus on their teacher they're looking at the window looking at what the classmates doing um yeah i, I happen to find my th that after some period of time i would always sit in the front row if i wasn't assigned a seat I didn't have anything else to look at but the teacher and the blackboard. Interesting. So uh, that was kind of my natural adaptation uh, to to it was that I found that oh things seem easier when I sit in the front row. I'll just be that kid who gets there early and sits in the front row. And to this day, I still do that uh, <laughs> just because it's such an in ingrained habit now. But it, it it's functional when it works. But it really, it's the impulsivity, and that's also the thing that is very dangerous about ADHD that mm -hmm. I think is really underappreciated. That a lot of times people think, oh, well, so you can't necessarily pay attention as much, and you know, you just just sit still. Mm -hmm. Well, impulsivity, and, and that leads to things like medication holidays, whether it's over weekends or summers, and that is a really tremendous mistake in my personal opinion, because this is a 24-7 condition. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, and if you think about it through the lens of impulsivity, it makes a lot more sense. The, there are voluminous studies showing that for children, there's greater rates of uh, broken bones and other injuries for adults. That A really cool study designed that looked at the same individuals uh, in months that they took the, uh, filled their ADHD medication took and presumably took it versus months they didn't, that the, the months that they did not take their ADHD medication, there was a statistically higher rate of motor vehicle accidents. And if you think about it, Driving is nothing but impulse <laughs> control because you're sitting at a, uh, a yellow light trying to figure out, do you try and turn left to cross traffic, beat the car in front of you, or do you just wait for, the, for it to pass? You've got a split second to decide, and that impulse control is critical. Also, people... Oh, no, go no, ahead. no, no, go on. You're on, you're on a roll. Go for it. I'm on fire right now. <laughs> uh, this, is, this is just so important, I think, just yeah. not appreciated. And uh, things like the, uh, people who have no filter verbally, being able to control those verbal impulses of, do I say things exactly as they come into my brain, or do I wait about three seconds and then say it in a way that's going to be more helpful, useful, polite, not um, offensive, whatever it might right. be. And... People with ADHD just that they don't have that filter, or they have a much shorter one, and then the with treatment that they can, it can restore that filter. Now, that doesn't mean that it takes them off the hook after that five second tape delay of the filter being put back on. They can still say something dumb, but at least the the medication put them back on equal footing with the person without ADHD. Craig, I have to say, I I love the framing as an impulsivity, you know condition because because it's absolutely correct you know and we even see the comorbidities or co-presentations or trends um are reflective of that right you already mentioned the um the aggressive or impulsive driving we have um a lot of a lot of girls it will present as excessive talkativeness or mm -hmm. um impulse shopping habits um often impulsive uh relationship behavior we often mm -hmm. see things like um other sorts of 
of addictive behaviors like gambling and I was just going to say use no go Jess yeah. yeah if I could jump in so I mean just when you were talking about the lack of filter you made me think of my father who had ADHD and truly was the definition of no filter whatsoever and that got him in some trouble but he also had an anxiety disorder he had um, addiction you know issues when it came to uh, gambling problems and and smoking um, and so can we talk a little bit more about some of the comorbid um, conditions that might be co-occurring or are things maybe often, I don't know, are things misdiagnosed or, you know, are, are we missing ADHD diagnoses or let, can we talk about that? <laughs> yes. And it's all of the above. Uh, ADHD is, it has a tremendous number of comorbidities. It's almost unusual for someone to have pure ADHD without any sort of comorbidity. Uh, and so it's, it really does run in packs with other conditions, but it can also, when untreated, mimic other, uh, other conditions as well. But the, the, the comorbidities can be different over time. Earlier in uh, childhood, there are often things like uh, the uh, conduct disorder or oppositional defiant disorder, uh, anxiety uh, in adolescence and adulthood, more often mood disorders, uh, major depression, bipolar disorder, um, like still anxiety, substance use disorders, binge eating disorder is pretty highly comorbid with ADHD. So uh, a lot of the thing and a lot of the, the, uh, and the substance abuse the binge eating, that those are also, we believe, uh, highly re uh, reliant on the dopamine system. That the the reward pathway in the brain, in the mesolimbic system, is a, a dopaminergic pathway. And so, dopaminergic dysregulation uh, can tie some of those together, but not all of them, because there's a lot of mood and anxiety uh, comorbid with ADHD. And that's more reliant on the serotonin system more, uh, to be very reductionist about it. Uh, so, it really is a highly heterogeneous condition. Also, sleep disorders. Every person with ADHD has a sleep disorder, and that is nowhere in the criteria. So there is always concern about uh, ADHD medication, especially stimulants, causing sleep problems. I, in my practice, tend to find that it is the exact opposite that most people, uh, and I, I'm biased because I do see almost exclusively adults or very late adolescents, so it could be very different in younger children. But sleep almost always improves with ADHD treatment, in my experience. And the way that uh, I've heard it conceptualized, and I think to me at least uh, makes sense conceptually, is that you have to be able to focus to, to fall asleep. If you're laying in bed <laughs> and thinking about 27 different things at once, and then there's a uh, a light over there from uh, from something that's plugged in or whatever, how are you supposed to sleep with that? Or some branches rustle against uh, the side of the house and like, oh, something's going on over there. It is, it is uh, literally my, me. It is literally me. My partner goes to bed much later than I do. And if he comes into mm -hmm. the bedroom and even turns the backlight on his phone, I am awake immediately. It doesn't matter if it's 3 a.m., 4 a.m., 5 a.m., whatever, I'm instantly awake. It's gotten better since I've started medication, but but I do every now and then have to take something to help with the sleep stuff. So what I was going to bring up is an anecdote that my, my poor wife, who is a social worker and therapist uh, who lives with all these people with ADHD uh, <laughs> in the household, says, you all take turns keeping me up all night. Because one of us uh, stays up too late, one uh, one of at least one of us wakes up too early. One wakes the, up in the middle of the night, so on and so forth. Uh, and the other way that uh, that she puts it is that uh, sleep is just too boring for you guys. <laughs> like, That's mm, so funny. You're not wrong. So just you know, talking about the way that some of these things present, I feel like again, using a personal anecdote that my son sort of has that like classic young boy, seven years old, like hyperactive, can't stay in his seat, but he engages in what's been described as stimming. And I'm hoping maybe you could just like explain what that is, but like he'll, you know, like these repetitive movements. And I'm sort of, I don't know if you're watching on YouTube, you see like, you know, he, he'll like rock back and forth. And he also um, chews on his shirt to the point where like, you know, mm. like you'll see not, not to be gross, yeah. but you know, you'll see like the saliva marker, he'll chew on the sleeve or he'll chew on the the neckline. And my understanding is that it's sort of like a way of self self soothing. Is that right? Like, can you talk about yeah. what stimming is and what, what this all is? 
Yeah. So, uh, so, and that's uh, uh, while on treatment, or is that off treatment that you're off talking treatment. about? Okay, because usually stimming, I, we tend to hear of as part of taking stimulant treatment, oh, which is where the word stimming would come from. That sometimes when on treatment, that it, that there can be some kind of stereotypical behaviors, oh. um, stereotypies that can be take various forms. It can be kind of dyskinetic, choreoathetoid type movements, or it can be the um, uh, also another term for this in the Parkinson's uh, literature where, again, there's dopaminergic replacement therapy is punding the very repetitive type behaviors. But uh, definitely some of those uh, those stereotypical type movements are very common. One of my kids, uh, my oldest son, uh, he will be chewing on it, either the collar or if it's a hoodie, the string, uh, the, the rope, uh, string along with it or the, the collar. And yeah, it can look, uh, it can, these monosyllabic yeah. can wick through yes. to most of the chest. Yes. Uh, sometimes you'll have chewing on it so long. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And tell him to you know, look, you got to stop that because he didn't even realize he's doing it. Uh, so that's just, and yeah, it's conceptualized as a kind of a self soothing type of behavior. But it's one that uh, can, especially for kids, yeah, can cause a lot of embarrassment. And so definitely want to address that. Right. Craig, let's, but, let's maybe shift gears and talk a little bit about how one might get diagnosed with ADHD, whether that be as a child or as an adult. And maybe we can also kind of, um, you know, bundle in. We're seeing a lot of millennial women in particular being diagnosed with ADHD um, in their 30s and 40s. People that were born in the 80s and, you know, late 70s, 80s, early 90s. And, you know, certainly there's a lot of social media attention and there's a lot of memes circulating about ADHD, but, but it does appear that, you know, things are changing in the scope of how it's diagnosed. So maybe you can walk us through some of those changes as mm -hmm. well as, you know, how you would actually diagnose someone. Sure. So uh, in childhood, generally what gets uh, the diagnosis are, are the hyperactive symptoms because it gets, sent, it gets you sent to the principal's office or the guidance counselor and the people take note of you if you're acting out, fighting, uh, things of that nature. And so that starts the, uh, to bring back a topic that you mentioned earlier, the gender divide. Because in boys, there's going to be more uh, a, of a predominance towards hyperactive symptoms and in girls, more of an inattentive uh, symptom. And what's going to get you noticed and, and to be sent to a pediatrician or child psychiatrist more likely that you are can't stop yourself from fighting with other kids or that you kind of daydream a little bit. And uh, that with our sexist society, you know, girls aren't supposed to be good at math anyway, uh, quote unquote. And so, you know, you got to see that's that's great for you. Well, maybe not. Maybe maybe with recognition and treatment of ADHD, if it were there, that could be an A-plus student. So that's one uh, problem uh, right there is that the, the disparities start early on. Also, that was compounded by the, uh, the fact that in DSM-IV and, uh, and previous, that the symptoms had to be recognized by the age of seven years old. And that's can be kind of hard to remember uh, if, if it's missed at that time. And DSM-5, which came out in 2013, they, that was one major change, is that the symptoms had to be manifest by 12 years old instead of seven. Now, that doesn't mean that it had to be recognized at the time, which is a very important uh, distinction to make. So, you don't have to recognize it just if you could look backwards and say, oh, by age 12 or previously age 7, then th th the symptoms were there. We just misinterpreted them. We missed them. But yeah, now that you mentioned it, that act does make sense. And uh, that's one thing I like to point out is that there really is no such thing as adult onset ADHD. The person had it all along, but because of the factors I mentioned earlier, the advantages, the IQ, the, uh, the scaffolding, the compensation, things like that, then it just wasn't noticed and wasn't recognized. But when you look back, okay, there it was. For, for me, for instance, how did I know that it wasn't normal to study five different subjects at the same time with all the different textbooks in front of you with a baseball game on TV and the radio yeah. on? That was normal to yeah. me, uh, but that was happening. And no, you know, in hindsight, of course, no wonder it, it took me so long to study and uh, retain things, but it seemed normal to me. Yeah. And um, so having that change in the age is, uh, you mentioned the uh, millennium women. Well, I think that's one big part of it is that having that age change from seven to 12. And then also the number of symptoms required. It used to be for, uh, for 
any age, six out of a list of nine hyperactive or six out of a list of nine of um, inattentive symptoms. And for uh, people age 17 and above, it was reduced to five out of nine because the, again, the criteria are going to become less and less uh, accurate to someone's presentation when they're older than when they were younger because they were written for young children, young boys. And so that that's another big change is that that you can have uh, meet fewer of the criteria because that's going to be more uh, consistent with what it might look like later in life. Yeah. Also, later in life, the hyperactive symptoms tend to diminish in a way or turn more internally, and the the inattentive symptoms become more prominent uh, as as people age as well, either male or female. Yeah, and I was going to say, you know, as people get older, they've they've been masking these their entire life, mm -hmm. so they may not be presenting with those symptoms even if they're experiencing them because it's just become second nature for them to to mask those things. And you know, I flash back to eight-year-old Andrea, who's reading the medical textbook, Physician's Guide to Arthropods of Medical Importance to, to people who, you know, thought she was a little weirdo and she thought it was the coolest thing ever. So yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's, 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 it's encouraging, right? It's nice that we're starting to overcome this, this, um, you know, the sexism in medicine, the kind of the, the gender divide, the gender disparity. I'm also a little bit salty about it, though, you know, and I, I feel like that's OK. Um, but but, you know, aside from kind of those those very obvious clinical presentations, are there any other uh, evaluations or testing that you might do um, for either a kid or an adult who who you may suspect has ADHD? So there are lots of different screening instruments out there. The, one of the most common ones for um, for children and adolescents are the the CPT, the Connors Performance Test, and the Vanderbilt. So those are two very common in children and adolescents. Uh, for adults, there's the ADHD RS, ADHD Rating Scale. Uh, but and then there are also uh, the neuropsychological testing, uh, which is uh, six to eight hours worth of uh, testing with a psychologist, but that is not necessary to make a diagnosis of ADHD. I have a lot of colleagues, unfortunately, who, uh, when seeing adults, that they will not make a diagnosis of ADHD unless the person has been undergone neuropsychological testing, which is the and one of the reasons it's so unfortunate is because it's almost never covered by insurance and it is very expensive. ADHD is a clinical diagnosis. And it, this is something that we uh, we really have to get through the stigma of is that that's usually the subtext of why the colleagues are saying that is that they don't believe in adults with ADHD and so they're trying they're trying to prove them wrong basically that and trying to prove like oh no you don't have this condition I'll send you to neuropsych testing that your insurance won't pay for and you can't afford and then you can't have the diagnosis I I withhold it from the uh, and that's that's just wrong. Yeah. Uh, there's just a tremendous amount of stigma. So growing up and living and practicing in the South, I say only half jokingly that well, ADHD uh, when you're a kid isn't treated with Ritalin as uh, as a kid. It's treated with a hickory switch in the South. Uh, that that and it's only half a joke for for a lot of people. That just oh you just need to behave. You just need to do the right thing and be a better kid or things of that nature. So while the hyperactive symptoms might become less common over time, become second nature. One thing that doesn't go away is are the scars that it can leave. And uh, I, I pulled up this quote because it's so. Um, it touched me so beautifully when when I first read it, and it's by Dr. Margaret Weiss, who's a, a prominent uh, ADHD physician, an MD-PhD. Um, One of the most pervasive and debilitating attributes is that a life history of rejection and failure is now experienced as a shadow, casting unremitting doubt and self-deprecation on their sense of self. This is true whether or not they have succeeded or failed. It is the hallmark of adults with ADHD that their self-esteem eats away at them irrespective of how they are doing. And oh that's how I tend to see people in my practice is that they didn't get the diagnosis as a child or adolescent, and they come in complaining of depression and anxiety. And they've been on many different antidepressants. But when I, when I start talking to them, I mean, I feel like a bloodhound. I can smell ADHD a mile away because I've been there. I've been undiagnosed ADHD. I know how the ADHD storytelling is, and I know just I, I can feel it. And then, then I do march through the criteria, uh, of course, and everything. But uh, And I tell them, well, look, you, of course you're depressed. 
you feel like you've been a failure, you've been told that you're unreliable, you're flaky, that you, uh, you maybe didn't achieve what you thought you should have in school or in sports or in uh, your career, and you're anxious because you're taking on too many projects, you're always uh, under the gun behind the eight ball because you procrastinated till the last second to try to get it done, of course you're depressed and anxious. But a SSRI isn't going to fix any of that, in my opinion, I, because I think that the core root problem is ADHD, and I think that that will improve if we can treat that. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't some people who do have truly comorbid generalized anxiety disorder or major depressive disorder or what have you, but I do find that a lot of these people, when the ADHD is treated appropriately, they no longer need the antidepressants like they used to because they're able to, the, the, the root problem is actually being treated, not just the symptoms trying to be addressed with a Band-Aid type of treatment. Craig, every single time you open your mouth, I feel like I'm in a therapy session. Like It's so soothing and comforting. You're just so wonderfully empathetic. I'm sure there are people listening to this who are like, how can I talk to Dr. Chakia? Or can we clone him? My goodness. Um, I don't want to take us off topic, Andrea. I mean, you had something to say. I'll hold what I was going to say. Do you want to well, say something? Yeah. So, so yeah. I, I, I want to kind of segue this into, you know, obviously we're now recognizing that ADHD has likely been underdiagnosed. Many people have gone undiagnosed. And so we are seeing a lot of content on social media regarding this is what I was going to say okay perfect <laughs> regarding ADHD autism other neurodivergent um conditions and so on and and so if you look at um, you know, the data on social media, um, the hashtag ADHD, and this was as of last May, had 11.4 billion views on TikTok. Now, a recent study, um, and we'll link that, of course, had, had suggested that more than half of the content was misleading, and the content that was misleading were, were obviously posted by non-healthcare providers. Um, the content that was posted by healthcare providers was overwhelmingly accurate and actually was was found to be useful by people. So we're in this kind of double-edged sword situation, right? So misinformation is rampant mm -hmm. in, in all shapes and sizes, but some people are finding that social media is allowing them to be aware of considering the fact that maybe they had ADHD and then seeking treatment. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on, you know, maybe the the benefits of the attention on social media and then some of the things that you might want people to be aware of when they come across this sort of content. I think knowledge is power and it's always important to be knowledgeable and I love when people when my patients do research and they're invested and engaged and activated in their healthcare. And the thing is to take that to your healthcare provider and then engage in a discussion because ADHD is underdiagnosed, but it also has the risk of being overdiagnosed as well. And part of that goes back to the name. If someone has difficulty at paying attention of, by virtue of speaking the English language, it would make sense that they have attention deficit disorder. But al almost every DSM diagnosis, whether it's MDD, uh, generalized anxiety disorder, bipolar disorder, uh, on and on, have at least one criterion that states the difficulty focusing, difficulty sustaining attention. It's worded differently for each one. And so it could be a sign of something else. But I think it's very important that people are recognizing that it could be ADHD because, unfortunately, very often it was never brought up as a possibility uh, either to them or maybe even in their healthcare providers' minds. It just never occurred to them. And it, it, unless you consider something, you can neither uh, lend support to or, or refute something. So I think it's great that we're having more. Uh, more awareness of these conditions, but we just have to make sure that we're not uh, jumping too fast mm -hmm. to conclusions because th there, there's always risk of harm. Um, many of the most of the treatments for ADHD are stimulants, which are Schedule II controlled substances. And for people who do legitimately have ADHD, they are literally life-saving medications. And really hard to get sometimes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, more so recently than ever. Uh, lots of shortages. But that calculus changes when it's someone who doesn't have ADHD. They have a different disorder that has some features that mimic ADHD. And then the, the, there's potentially cardiovascular risks, the risk of um, non-medical use or diversion, um, just a, a number of different uh, aspects. So, just making sure that there's a good, accurate diagnosis and that 
that may, may be with a different healthcare provider than the person is currently seeing. Because many healthcare providers, like I said, don't believe in ADHD for adults or don't believe in treating it. And they may need to find a provider with a more open mind to discuss it. Yeah. And and honestly, like I've been to psychiatrists for 20 years, right? And, and you know, have gone through the array of, of antidepressants and anxiety meds. And my brother had, you know, really poorly managed bipolar. And ultimately, I know we spoke about this, um, you know, he died by suicide. But it was my current psychiatrist, the last, you know, I mean, obviously, when this all started, you know, earlier in the spring, who was like, well, if you feel that way and you've tried X, Y, Z, A, B, C, and all these other things, and you still have this, like, have you been evaluated for ADHD? And I was like, no. And then my partner was like, well, you've got like a pinball bouncing around in your head. And I was like, oh, and then, and then it all like, and then it was like, oh yeah. But of course, you know, it wasn't self-diagnosis. It was diagnosis that was you know, in my instance, was actually brought up by my 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 provider, and we kind of explored it together. Similarly, I saw a psychiatrist uh, for uh, two different psychiatrists uh, f- uh, during the four years of med school, weekly, the four years of residency, at least once a week. He was a psychoanalyst, so sometimes we met twice weekly, and there they always just diagnosed me with generalized anxiety disorder, which I believe I did probably meet the criteria for. But eight years of SSRIs and psychotherapy pretty much fix that. And then when I finished residency, moved to Charlotte and got therefore had to get a new psychiatrist. Uh, he t- practically took one look at me and said, uh, I think you need Concerta, not Selexa for your problems. And then we discussed it more. And then that's how the diagnosis eventually got made. And uh, my wife, who met me uh, after all this happened, uh, and as I said, is a social worker and therapist, I don't know how anybody ever missed this. Uh, it, it's the most obvious thing I've ever seen. Uh, so it, you know, you can't find what you're not looking for uh, right. sometimes. And if it's not on the differential diagnosis for a healthcare provider, then it's the diagnosis isn't probably going to be made. Just a thirty second tangent. When we were talking about stimulants, Andrea, I was just thinking back to our college days and how there were a lot of people who were not diagnosed with ADHD who were taking the taking Adderall. Adderall. Taking the and Adderall. also. Side note, yeah. do you remember that they had caffeine pills in the vending machines? Yes. I don't know if you remember this. I do. I took one once and it did not go well for me. I had to write a lab report. I was I was like my, like my brain was asleep, but my body was like in overdrive. Not good. Yeah. Um, absolutely. All right. So just going back to social media, which we've sort of acknowledged, double-edged sword, you know, it helps raise awareness, it helps spread good information, but it also helps to spread misinformation and, and all that kind of stuff. And you know, on that note, we've seen a lot of myths about ADHD go viral. And maybe we could just, I know we don't have all that much time and we still have to talk about treatment, um, but maybe we could just like run through some of these myths. Um, The first that always crops up is sugar, that sugar is causing ADHD. Um, That's not true. We know that. Of course, we don't recommend consuming excess sugar. That's not a good thing for, you know, a variety of reasons, but it's not causing ADHD, right? Does anyone want to comment on that? Yeah. And it's also, it's also not exacerbating ADHD. ADHD is not the same as having a blood sugar spike. You know, those are completely different physiological, psychological phenomenon. Um, and, and ultimately this really goes back to demonizing carbohydrates, which is all based on misinformation to begin with. So we've talked a lot about food dyes with regard to a lot of a lot of topics. Um, of course there's common, um, misconceptions that are, often under underpinned by chemophobia or the undue fear of chemicals and the appear to nature fallacy, which, which people say that artificial food, food dyes, food colorings, and also preservatives in food worsen ADHD. There's no robust data to suggest this. There was, you know, there's some few limited studies amongst children that are looking at specific food colorings that, um, you know, maybe have a correlation, not a causation. There are some flaws in the studies. There's confounding variables that weren't maybe parsed out. Just with anything that you consume or interact with, some people may have a poor reaction to something. Other people may not. Um, It's not, you know, something that you inherently need to avoid or be afraid of if you've been diagnosed with ADHD. Just like you can't find something you're not looking for, if you are looking for something, you're sure as heck going to find find it. it. Yeah. 
So if you have that expectation bias of, oh, watch, I'm going to give him sugar and look what happens. Exactly. If you said the same thing for a a steak, then you probably find, (laughs) oh my gosh, steak makes his ADHD worse. So you just have to be very careful with these. And it's so heterogeneous, maybe for one kid or another, maybe there is something there, but to make a blanket statement that that this highly uh, heterogeneous uh, condition that is so multifactorial is going to be always caused or exacerbated by this one specific chemical or food, right. it just, it doesn't yeah. make sense. And that, and that goes to kind of all the other myths, right? You know, exactly. we need, we need to have this rigid elimination diet. We need to avoid gluten. We need to avoid dairy. We need to have a special ADHD that's going to cure it. You know, one example is the, the fine gold diet, you know, anything that's named for somebody is probably not a good idea. <laughs> um, and any, and anything that's like excessively rigid or is eliminating very healthy foods, um, certain Certainly, there's there's no evidence that that any of these things have an implication or a therapeutic benefit if you have ADHD. All right. So speaking of therapeutic benefit, let, let's talk about what we can actually do to you know to treat or to manage ADHD. Craig, do you want to kick off that conversation? The most common treatment for ADHD is uh, one that's one of the oldest treatments that we have in all of psychopharmacology, which are the psychostimulants. So methylphenidate and amphetamines, these uh, predate almost everything else in psychopharmacology. So 70 plus years worth of treatment. Uh, they've actually uh, have kind of grandfathered their way past a couple uh, FDA rules and requirements. It'd be very unlikely nowadays uh, if if amphetamine or methylphenidate were brought to the FDA for the first time uh, today. It, I you know never know what FDA is going to do, but it, they would not be likely to get approved in in my opinion based off the risk benefit profile. But that's they've been the mainstay for over 70 years. And part of it is because they are extraordinarily highly efficacious uh, in terms of standardized effect sizes. That which that means you don't have to know the specific rating score uh, scales. The the um, uh, amphetamines usually have a standardized uh, effect size of one or greater, which is a large effect size, and go to 1.1, 1.2, 1.3 in some studies. Methylphenidates uh, will have a, a standardized effect size of. 0.5, 0.6, medium to getting up towards large, and those are phenomenal. Uh, for for contrast, antidepressants generally have a 0.2 to 0.3, a, a small effect size. Um, antipsychotics in schizophrenia will have 0.4, maybe 0.5 at the at best. So they are kind of head and shoulders more efficacious than almost any other treatment for the uh, most other psychiatric conditions. Then uh, there also, but in addition to uh, the stimulants, we do have a growing class of non-stimulants for uh, children and adolescents. There are the alpha two adrenergic agonists, uh, clonidine and guanfacine. Those are notably not approved in adults. They are often used off-label in adults, but not approved. Uh, and then approved for uh, children, adolescents, and adults, there are two norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, adamoxetine, uh, which it was initially uh, developed to be an antidepressant, but didn't work as an antidepressant, and was the first uh, approved non-stimulant for adults with ADHD, also shown in um, in children as well. And then uh, just a couple years ago, veloxazine extended release was FDA approved for first children and adolescents, then about a year later for adults. Uh, interesting story with this one. It was actually used in Europe for decades as an antidepressant uh, before it ever made its way to the US. Um, as a, uh, It was taken multiple times a day. A company here uh, put it into an extended release formulation, studied for ADHD, and showed very good results. Uh, and so it's now approved for children, adolescents, and adults um, for, with ADHD. Craig, just a question about stimulant versus non-stimulant. What might help you know dictate that decision making whether someone try a stimulant or a non-stimulant? Great question. So uh, with most of the non-stimulant options, historically they work very slowly, and so stimulants work very quickly. Within a, a couple of days, we can tell pretty well if it's going to help them or not, and that's really almost the only thing in psychiatry that we can say uh, that we can do uh, very quickly. And so that was, and the effect size of the non-stimulants, it falls roughly in the medium range, uh, generally 0.4, 0.5, somewhere around there on average. Could you be even lower for some of them? Uh, so that that relatively lower effect size versus the, uh, 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 coupled with the longer time to efficacy has not 
been a great value proposition, so to speak, for uh, treating ADHD in, in many cases. However, uh, veloxazine extended release, though, does have a much faster onset. It's not days, but within a week or two, uh, people can start to see a benefit there. And the great advantage of the non-stimulants is that they are not controlled substances at all, as opposed to the Schedule II controlled substance that all psychostimulants are. And also, just the overall safety profile and tolerability profile is generally much better for the non-stimulants. Mm. So, uh, so, for people who don't want to be on controlled substances, well, non-stimulants are the way to go. Also, non-stimulants exert a 24-hour effect, whereas the stimulants have a shorter duration because we want them out of the system right. by the time we go to sleep. If we had stimulants in our system 24 hours a day, that wouldn't go so great. So, that's a disadvantage to stimulants. And so, if the duration, um, which could be either later on in the evening or mornings, because you, a stimulant doesn't start working until you swallow it, absorb it, and it, it, it goes through usually first-pass metabolism in the liver. It takes a while to take effect. Whereas a 24-hour non-stimulant, well, that's working 24 hours a day. So it starts as soon as someone wakes up. And a lot, a lot of people with ADHD, their mornings are nightmarish because they can't get themselves up, organized, uh, dressed, uh, groomed, fed <laughs> uh, off into the car with everything they need to. Uh, and so that can be a huge advantage for a, for a non-stimulant. Mm. So it's really, it's individualized and personalized to what is what are the, the symptoms a person's having in terms of time of day, uh, the uh, tolerability and the uh, risk aversion to certain aspects, convenience of um, having the 24 hours instead of sometimes taking multiple stimulant pills in a given day. Uh, although with most newer stimulants that are extended release, they can cover most of the day for most people mm. with some of the, the more very recent ones. Uh, so there's a lot of different considerations, uh, I think. And also, there's a myth that amphetamines work better for adults and methylphenidate work better for children. And to me, a lot of that myth comes from that the first uh, FDA-approved treatment for uh, adults with ADHD was mixed amphetamine salts with the brand name Adderall. So, when you define the market and own it uh, solely for many years, of course, it's going to look like right. it's more effective because marketing works. And so, uh, in in my experience, and there is some evidence that back this up, the evidence is greater in the children and adolescent side than in adults, but a good rule of thumb would be that about a third of people do best with methylphenidate, a third of people do best with amphetamine, and a third will do equally well with either. And I believe that applies to both uh, the children and adolescent side and to the adult side. Uh, and then for, uh, for and that that is not uh, including non-stimulants in the equation. That's purely looking at the stimulant side um, because the uh, the two FDA-approved non-stimulants for adults have shown efficacy. Um, Veloxazine probably a little bit greater than atomoxetine. Hmm. Interesting. What about non-pharmaco options? Are there you know therapy-based options we could chat about? Yes. Uh, so, there, just traditional therapy can work for some people, but executive functioning coaching and ADHD coaching is uh, very important and can be uh, highly beneficial, uh, especially uh, or even uh, as well to people who are receiving pharmacologic treatment. Because just like uh, I mentioned that putting the tr treatment on uh, helps improve the, the filter for, uh, the, it gives a tape delay for not saying certain things. Well, also, just because the attention is improved doesn't mean someone is automatically going to be able to organize well and prioritize well and know how to study or know how to triage different and, prior, uh, and multitask. That those are skills that they didn't learn when they were younger, and an ADHD coach may be able to help them with that specific. Co it's, it's that's why it's called a coaching, not a therapy. You're you're being coached to learn specific tasks that now with the medication on board, then you're much more likely to be able to learn those and to uh, put them into play than when the the ADHD was not treated. So, those are very important and I think should be a part of all treatment regimens um, for people with ADHD. It's never just about a pill for, for anybody for any psychiatric condition. Uh, so, th I'm definitely glad that you brought those up. Craig, what do we owe you for this session? <laughs> <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. I always learned so much from you. Really, this was so really illuminating, so comprehensive, amazing. Thank you so much. You're welcome. And the answer is just the getting to spend time with you uh, both is is all the payment that I would ever need. <laughs>
My God, um, someone Craig, please look into cloning him. Okay, sorry, Andrea, go on. I'll get on. Take I'll get on. I'll get on it. I got the genetic engineering <laughs> toolkit. Craig, any any last words that you want to leave our listeners with with regard to ADHD or or anything that we've discussed? Well, I'm I'm just really grateful that you asked me on to talk about this uh, because I think it is very important and so underappreciated and can really help so many people and. If anyone out there is listening and hearing things that sound like you, find a healthcare provider who is willing to talk about it. We want to make sure that people are getting accurately, appropriately diagnosed and treated. And it's something that everyone should feel comfortable talking about. And it's nothing to be ashamed of. It's not that you just didn't try hard enough. You didn't work hard enough. You weren't good enough, even if that's what you're thinking, because I've been there. And uh, look into it and see if it is that or if it's not that, is there something else that could be actionable that could help to make your life better? Absolutely. And, And what my psychiatrist said to me, which really resonated was, you know, you're, you're very successful. You've, you've done all of these things in your life, but it probably didn't need to be as hard as it was. So I think, you know, that mm-hmm. really validated, you know, and I had never considered this as a potential diagnosis. I just always accepted, well, you know, I check all the boxes for major depression and, and anxiety. And honestly, you know, it, it, it felt like a weight was lifted, you know, once I started medication and I, I really did feel a difference within days. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Craig. Once again, always incredible conversations, always filled with evidence. Um, We hope... We hope our listeners learn a thing or two. Um, So thank you once again. And to our listeners, if you want to support our efforts and help us grow the impact and reach of Unbiased Science, please feel free to consider supporting us. You can donate to us through our website um, or our Venmo account or our coffee page. We also have some fun, snarky merch on our website, including our Got Aspartame or our Science is Sexy shirts. So try and pick up one of those. Um, And you can sign up for our Substack newsletter at theunbiasedscipod.substack.com. And our website is www.unbiasedscipod.com. And make sure to subscribe to YouTube if you want to see our beautiful faces every single week. Our handle is at unbiasedscipod, the same handle as all of our other social channels. Catch you next time on the pod, your trusted source for no nonsense, just science. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist.